You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, well, hi, everybody. I'm Penny, as you can see. And we're, today we're doing high-density sentences, which is really our way of tying into M Pavilion's interest in um, the public space. And, but we're sort of transposing it to the page. We're just going, how can we use our page space wisely? Um, is anyone here a writer? Put your hands up. Well, can I say, is anyone, does anyone here write things? Yes, it's me too. Everyone writes things. Um, I always say... Well, we'll say welcome to all writers. I think everyone is a writer. I read a book um, recently um, and I can't, I can't remember the name of the book, so I apologise. I'll put it in the links. But she said something really, really wise in the introduction, which was um, there are working writers and those are a dying breed and the rest of us are writing workers. And I thought, oh, gosh, that is so true. Um, today we're going to try and... Um, Think of some strategies for um, using our writing time wisely because there's never enough time for writing or editing. Um, I always pose the question, what is good writing? Um, and I think that's such an interesting question. Um, when I ask it in our classes, a really common response is that good writing is short. People will often say, I just write too much. I just spew things onto the page and I don't know how to cut. Um, and I tend to agree with that. I think um, short writing is generous to the reader in the sense that, yeah, um, it's not taking up people's time too much. And obviously there are so many other things that make writing great. Um, today we're almost doing half of it. We're doing what are the, what are the words that we need to cut out um, what are the words that add length without value? And then I think this question that comes after that, which is, is what are the words that you add in after that, after you've scrubbed the slate? Today we're doing, we're focusing on slate scrubbing. Um, really because here's the challenge, and it's a very simple challenge. It's you've got a message, reader's got a life, you have to somehow get over the bridge. It's a very high-tech diagram on screen right now. <laughs> um, that challenge, I think people underestimate. I, I, I underestimate it when I haven't had enough coffee. Um, E.B. White said, oh, well, here's someone, here's someone who underestimates it and, has, and famously did so on 70s and 80s TV. It was the one question today to which I could give a clear, simple, straightforward, honest answer. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, although the answer was indeed clear, simple and straightforward, there is some difficulty in justifiably assigning to it the fourth of the epithets you applied to the statement. <laughs> Inasmuch as the precise correlation between the information you communicated and the facts insofar as they can be determined and demonstrated is such as to cause epistemological problems <laughs> of sufficient magnitude as to lay upon the logical and semantic resources of the English language a heavier burden than they can reasonably be expected to bear. Epistemological? What are you talking about? <laughs> you told a lie. <laughs> A lie? A lie. What do you mean a lie? I mean you... <sighs> lied. <laughs> I really want to give a tribute at this point to Sir Humphrey Appleby, who uh, 
the actor who portrayed him passed away recently. Um, and uh, he was such a fixture of my childhood, saying nothing. Here's E.B. White, one of my favourite writers, stating a great truth. When you say something, make sure you have said it. Your chances of having said it are only fair. <laughs> it's so true. Is anyone an E.B. White fan? That's him there. E.B. White wrote Charlotte's Web. And he also wrote the baffling little short novel, Stuart Little. And he is the, the half author of the very famous Strunk and White, The Elements of Style. Has anyone, yes, interacted with that terrifying little style manual? That was Evie White. Um, other people say the same thing. George Bernard Shaw, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. <laughs> so, inspired by that, today, here's what we're going to do. Two sections. We're going to do the cutting and then we're going to do the editing. <laughs> Um, I think it's right to put it in that order because to do the cutting, we're going to have to do some serious grammar. Um, and everyone here has only just had a coffee, so it's like, I think, good. We're caffeinated. We'll do that first. <laughs> okay. So, Truman, I believe more in the scissors than I do in the pencil. I'm really geeing you up here. I'm trying to inspire you all. Most drafts can be cut by 50% without losing any information or the author's voice, William Zinser. My favourite quote about this is Joan Didion. Prune it out, clean it up, make the point. Um, is anyone here a Joan Didion fan? I'm, Joan is extremely stylish. Uh, she, uh, Joan, before she became a great kind of teller of American stories in the 20th century, worked at Vogue in the 50s, and Joan worked under Diana Vreeland, who was famously brutal, uh, about using words efficiently. Joan's job was to do, like, the front of book coffee, copy for Vogue, so 30 words on a lipstick, you know, make it punchy. And Diana used to apparently shout this, prune it out, clean it up, make the point. So that's where we will draw our inspiration from today. There's Joan. Um, I always like to give a little um, definition up front when we welcome. Hello. Um, you haven't missed too much. Um, Here's a little definition up front for this section about cutting. Um, some of you will have uh, worked from perhaps a style guide at your work or perhaps in your department there's a little writing guide um, or some of you might have used a bigger style manual like the Australian Government Style Manual. Am I getting any nods here? Is that familiar to anyone? Um, often these writing guides will um, really close to the front say, we use plain English. Um, is that a familiar term, plain or plain language? Yeah, and I really like to define that because I think people people's word association, when you say to them plain English, they get a slightly incorrect definition in their minds. Maybe if we ran out uh, to secure the road right now and said to someone plain English, I think what they think is simplified. You know, they think it's a yeah, it's a little bit simple. Um, and that's not what the progenitors of plain English mean. Like when, when people, the people who invented plain English as a movement, when they say it, they mean something, I think, closer to intuitive English. Um, as in, these words are like a window to the idea or the, the words aren't getting in the way of the message. The way I like to imagine plain English is sort of a spatial I imagine it spatially and it's based on something that I think is unverifiable. But apparently someone once said to Rodan, the sculptor, Rodan, how do you take that block of marble and turn it into an elephant? 
And Rodan goes, I just take away everything that isn't the elephant. <laughs> and to me, that's, that's what plain English is. It, it doesn't impoverish an idea. It just crystallizes it. And if you can learn to write in plain English, you become a bit, a bit of a rigorous thinker. Um, and so I use it as a kind of thinking tool to see whether I'm saying anything useful or whether I've said something twice. And it might work for you as a thinking tool as well. That's what we're kind of going to do now, figure out how to strip everything out. Um, so we've got our definition of plain English. We're going to move on now to some serious grammar. Um, can I get a, just a show of hands in, this, in our little group today? Who remembers doing any sort of sentence structure grammar at school? Oh, some of you are lucky. I don't remember too much. I went to school in Australia after they sort of took that off the curriculum. That, that happened in about in the early 70s. And so I don't remember. I remember things like a comma is a pause. Um, but I, I certainly don't remember, do, you know, coming across the term clause, you know, or um, I, other than maybe when I learned another language, you know, or when you, yeah. And so I think that... Uh, we're about to do some terms that, hey, that might be familiar or unfamiliar, but I'll explain them as we go. And grammar is not something to be afraid of. Um, Stephen King said, grammar is a pain in the ass, but, <laughs> but it's also the tool that gets your thoughts up on their feet and walking. So I'm like, yes, all right, great. So let's ask. Um, I think often when you hear that term plain English, it's used interchangeably with this term. We write actively, active, active. Um, so we're really just going to explore what that means. What do people mean when they say active? Um, all right, question one. We're going to really do an active clause. Okay. And to do that, we're going to do what we have to ask, what is a sentence? Does anyone want to have a go? What is a sentence? <laughs> oh. A verb. You need a verb. A, a very high-tech and wonderful answer. Um, you need a verb. Um, I'll give a more, a less technical definition first and then we'll go. So let's say that it, what qualifies for a full stop? What is a thing that can be a sentence? We would say it's a thing that's a complete thought. At least, let's even go further. Let's say it's a thing that's at least one complete thought. A sentence can be like 26 complete thoughts. If it, it has to be punctuated very well. Uh, the first time it gets a full stop is when it's one complete thought. So we're really saying, what is a complete thought? That's what we're asking. Um, now, grammatically, we could say two things qualify as a complete thought. One of them would be what we'd call an interjection or an exclamation. So I could go, wow. That's like, that gets a full stop. Um, I used to have an editor when I worked at The Age and she'd, you'd email her and she'd reply, no. That also gets a full stop. <laughs> so we're not really talking about that stuff. It's not very interesting grammatically. Let's go to what does a string of words have to do to be called complete? Now we're getting closer to the definition that someone's just given. The string of words has to have, it can't, it can't just be what I'd call a thing. It can't just be my cat. It has to be a thing and then the stuff going on with that thing. So my cat arrived. That's a complete thought. <laughs> Am I getting, I'm getting enough nods. Okay, you definitely have to wave if I'm not making sense. So we've got thing and then the stuff going on with that thing. That's a complete thought. Um, in grammar, actually, we call that a, a thing that contains those elements, a, a clause. Okay, so. Um, and the grammatical terms for my cat arrived are 
subject verb. Okay. So what I'm really saying to you is we have subject verb pair. We have a clause, a thing that can qualify as a complete thought. All right. So we're getting there. <laughs> I want you to all try and identify the components here. I've got uh, on the screen a list of sentences, each made up of a single clause and actually the simplest form of the clause. So we'll see this, the thing and the stuff going on with that thing. Um, what the, the key to seeing these is always to try to find the verbs first. You want to find the action. Okay, so the first one, what would you say is the action? Laughed, correct. So what would you say is the subject? Penny. Okay, easy. There we go. There's our subject verb pair. Um, next one, find, tell me, uh, if I say to you, the big old dog pooed, what's the action? Pooed. Right. And so if I said to you, the big old dog pooed, what's the subject there? Dog. That is the simple subject, but in full form, the subject is that. So the subject is the big old dog pooed. Okay. I want you to think of subjects more as grammatical entities. They're like building blocks. They're not necessarily the doer of the pooing. Does that make sense? They're just a thing that glues on to the verb. All right, good. So the way to see them is step away from the sentence a little bit. First, find the verb. What's the next verb? If I say my orange rotted, what's that? Rotted. Right. And so we'll say, all right, there's the verb rotted. This clause is X rotted. What is X? Yeah, there you go. He's starting to get it. So next verb, plenty of people jog. The verb is jog. Subject is blah. <laughs> yep. Next verb, Becky and Beyonce argued. Verb is argued. That's a compound subject, Becky and Beyonce. Next verb, that big old spangly Elvis costume smells. Smells. All right, there you go. And then there's a subject. So it's quite calming looking at these because they're all the, they're all the same structure. They're just, they're just subject verb. So good. That's easy. Let's go on to harder list. Ready? We've got each of these is a single sentence made up of a single clause. So we'll expect to see that crucial pair, subject verb. Um, go through and tell me the verbs. Yep, eight. Stole is, I'm going to pause there. Pen, uh, Jeremy is hairy. This is a really um, important verb to remember, is. It's a form of the verb to be, to be. And this is the most irregular verb in English. It has more versions of itself than any other verb. Am, are, was, has been, might be, could have been being, is. Do you feel it? And it's good to start be able to spot those. It's a tricky little verb and one to watch out for. Okay, we've got next verb, skates. Gave, yep. Got, yep. Yep, put. Isn't it easy to see verbs? And I want you to observe how easy it is. It's, it's easy because your brain is a heat-seeking little verb missile. That's how it reads sentences. Um, it finds the verb and then it sort of jumps back. So you don't really read left to right. Um, I, I, yeah, heat-seeking verb missile. Okay, so you, so you can see all my subject verb pairs there. We've got, and that's what tells you each of these is a single clause. It's got the anchor. Some of these clauses have other stuff in them though, right? Um, and this, what's calming is these are the basic forms of the clause in English, these seven forms. Isn't that exciting? Oh, the top three are really important today, so I'm going to go through them. You ready? So the first, see you've got all that, we've got all our subjects down the side, and then we've got this bit, which I'd call verb plus everything else. In grammar, that bit verb, is called the predicate. So some people will say a clause has a subject and a predicate. It's just verb plus everything else. So this first predicate's really easy. It's just eight. 
this next predicate. So we've got Sarah stole stuff. That's subject, verb, and what we call object. So stuff in this sentence is an object. And a grammatical object, you can tell something's an object if it does two things. First of all, an object has to be a thing. So it's got to be a noun. Second of all, it's got to answer that question that the verb poses. So I call it the verb what question. See how it's Sarah stole what stuff. Like Penny ate what a hot dog. If you can sort of, yeah, object. All right, next is different. And grammatical terms vary, but mo many grammar books would call this a compliment. So subject, verb, compliment. Jeremy is hairy. And you can think of a compliment as completing your understanding of the subject. Do you see how it's a little bit different? It reflects back and tells you more about Jeremy. This, this sentence structure is really like an equal sign. Jeremy equals hairy. Or I could say Penny feels over-caffeinated. Can you feel how that, that subject verb compliment as well? Yeah. This is subject, and this is where we get into just, I mean, it's a bit academic, so don't stress too much about these, but this is subject verb and what we call an adverbial sentence element. See how that tells you more about the verb? Adverbials are kind of like verb how or like verb where. I'll give you a harder adverbial. Penny ran, subject verb, to the milk bar. To the milk bar is an adverbial. Or Penny drinks after work. After work is an adverbial. Can you feel it? Okay. I'm getting enough nods. I'm just going to keep going unless someone starts crying. Okay, good. Um, this is subject, verb, indirect object, object. Sarah gave Penny a cigarette. She probably shouldn't have done that. This is subject, verb, object, and the object complement. This is subject, verb, object, adverbial. There you go. You've got the building blocks now. English is... Um, a ridiculous language in many ways, but we're quite lucky in that it just, it has this simple structure for the clause most of the time, unless subject glued onto the front of the verb. Often you'll see inverted inversions of that in question forms in English. Um, I'm learning um, Mandarin this year. I say this year, like I'll be learning Mandarin for the next 25 years. But I was, I'm very calmed by its grammar. It has, it's, it, it really is so logical and it rarely inverts the way. But ours is sort of okay. It's neat. Not as neat as Mandarin. Okay, so good. Everyone's feeling good. The, each of these is a single clause. So there's something that's cool about, else that's cool about these sentences and they're what we'd call right branching sentences. And that term right branching comes from, I guess, the, the exciting universe of sentence diagramming. <laughs> if you diagram a sentence that's right branching, it has a really calming little kind of line at the front <laughs> and then all this other stuff that branches off. Really, a right branching sentence gives readers the stuff they need up front, subject, verb. Um, anything that you do that gets in the way of readers connecting the subject to the verb increases a cog cognitive load. <laughs> so if I could go, if I go, my cat arrived, that's quite easy to process in your brain. But as soon as I start going, say I said, walking in like a little punk, my cat arrived. <laughs> See, I've dunked something in at the start. And your brain has, what your brain does is it sort of copies that material to the clipboard. It sort of goes control C, hold it to the clipboard. Because you're looking for subject verb, my cat arrived. And then you, then you go back and you pull it down mentally. So I'll make it even less kind of easy to understand. Walking in like a little punk, my cat, hairy as ever, arrived. <laughs> Do you see how? Yeah, and so you know when you get 
foggy-brained, reading really bad business writing or, or contracts or whatever. That's really an art writing. And I want to say, actually, a lot of writing about architecture <laughs> that I read. You get foggy-brained and it's just that you've got too much on the clipboard. That's what's going on. You've got a lot stored there. Your job is to find subject verb and connect it. And then you have to pull the stuff down from the clipboard. So um, just sticking that pair together, subject verb, is super generous to readers. Um, I'll show you the worst sentence of 2017. I won't even read it to you. It's terrible. The committee, having regard to the totality of factors considered above, concluded, given the low urgency ascribed to the need for choice relative to the need for baseline provision of goods, that there was not currently a gap on the spectrum of adequacy sufficient to conclude that the provision... I'm not even going to continue. Um, I say this is the worst sentence of 2017 because the UK Plain English Campaign literally gives an award every year for the... And this was the worst sentence of 2017. It, this is what it means. We looked at the evidence and decided that the neighbourhood has enough chemists. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's funny. What, I mean, one of the things you could say about it is that it, the subject-verb pair is split. That's one thing that's wrong with it. So, the subject here is the committee. What's the verb that it's wanting to connect to, that it connects to really out in the sentence? Can you, can you see? Concluded, yeah. So, the sentence makes you sort of go, the committee, na, 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 concluded. Can you feel it? <laughs> so, let's do another one. Some readers can stretch. I'm just sort of doing your brain. And then you pull it down, right? The nub of the issue depends. Do you feel it? Look at the power of pulling that depends up next to the subject. It is super powerful. Um, I don't want you to... Oh, welcome to our newcomer in the front row. I don't want you to write every sentence like this with the subject verb up front or connected because you'll sound like a robot. You'll sound like an AI or Hemingway, which I don't know if that's bad or good. Um, but it is useful to observe that it's easier to read. Um, in legal writing especially, they'll divide this stuff. So it'll say, the plaintiff having blah, 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 must. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. All right, so now we can get to a definition of an active clause. Whew. So we've got Sophie ate the Snickers. Uh, now, Sophie here is the grammatical subject. She is connecting to the verb ate. <laughs> and then we have ate what? The Snickers, right. The Snickers is the object. But there's another layer of stuff going on here. Sophie is the grammatical subject here. That in any version of this sentence you imagine, Sophie's still eating the Snickers. She's what we, we call the doer of the action, the agent. The Snickers, yeah, it's an object here, but in any version it's getting eaten. It's, for some reason, what we call the patient. <laughs> so, I can split those things and have a look at this sentence. The Snickers was eaten by Sophie. In this sentence, the important thing to know is that we have a new subject. The subject of this sentence is the Snickers. The subject is the grammatical entity that glues onto the verb. The subject is the thing that the rest of the statement is about. Um, and now, Sophie's down the end. This here, the Snickers was eaten by Sophie. And actually, she's grammatically optional. Like, we could just go, the Snickers was eaten, full stop. So do you see in this form of the sentence, some, yeah, the human disappears a bit. <laughs> so this is the passive form. There's nothing grammatically wrong with the passive form. I get a bit um, snarky with style guides that say, right, active, right, active. And I think, well... As speakers of English, we've invented the passive voice because it's useful. Sometimes we need to stress the Snickers. Sometimes it's not relevant who has eaten the Snickers or we just mentioned them. You know, the passive voice is not evil and it's not incorrect. Um, 
But it's worth asking, why do people seem to hate it so much and tell you not to write in it? Um, I think the first thing to observe is this is a longer sentence. Like it just blows out a bit. The Snickers was eaten by Sophie. The verb turns into a two-worder, was eaten. So the action's a little bit shunted down. Um, it's also um, less precise in the sense that an active sentence gives you doer, done to, and you get their relationship very clearly and someone's in charge. <laughs> um, one of our grammar students... Um, had a really amazing example of this recently. I thought it was a bit, um, it's a bit intense, but I loved it. She said, imagine if domestic violence could be reported on in the active voice, because <laughs> uh, then it wouldn't be um, 66 women have been attacked this year. <laughs> It'd be 66 men have attacked women. Do you, see what, do you see what I mean by the precision of that? And so that can be really important in instructions even or in legal contexts. Um, has, does anyone here want to put your hand up and say um, that you think you write in the passive sometimes? Yes, thank you. Exactly. What a wonderful um, point. So I, um, we, we, why do we sometimes write in the passive? A really big answer to that is that in, in um, academic in traditional academia, and especially in empirical contexts, it shouldn't be relevant who did the, the doing. You're supposed to go, the results were analysed. And, it, you know, you're not supposed to go, Neil analysed the results. <laughs> and so I think we, can't, we, we take that and then sometimes we apply it elsewhere. Um, I do want to um, say two controversial things. <laughs> The first is that that's not true in academia anymore, even in, in the sciences. Most academic journals, including The Lancet, like across the sciences and the arts, now ask for the active voice. Um, I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you as someone who's edited quite a lot of theses in my time, you get 500 words into a thesis that's written completely in the passive voice and it's a wasteland. There are no people in it. They have to twist themselves in knots to stay you know, in the passive, and it's just an awful read. Um, people sort of look at me and don't believe me because they, um, they're super, they think, oh, my supervisor's going to tell me to make it passive. And I always direct them to this book, Stylish Academic Writing by Helen Sword. This is a very powerful book because Helen, I actually call it stylish anything writing. I use it everywhere. Um, Helen is Professor Helen, so people tend to listen to her because she's a professor. Also, it's out through, I think, um, Harvard University Press, so they listen to that as well. And she's done a quantitative, quantitative analysis of academic writing across every discipline. And she can say things like, did you know that 75% 70, of journals now ask for... So there you go, active. So that's your... Um, actually, let me... I need to explain to you how great Helen is. Here she is. She says, my agenda is, frankly, a transformative one. I aim to start a stylistic revolution that will end in improved reading conditions for all. <laughs> in particular, I hope to empower colleagues who have come to believe, I have heard this mantra again and again, that they are not allowed to write a certain way. Helen, she's so great. I should tell everyone here that if you put, give me your email address, I'll send you this little book list and link list afterwards if you would like a real nerd read list on your Sunday. Um, Let's do a practice test for identifying the passive voice. I, I want to say the other reason that we use it is that we are, we've been a bit damaged by high school and I think part of it is just that 
need to hit a word count. You know, when you're sitting in high school, you're like, oh, I've got to get to a thousand words. And the passive voice really helps you to do that because everything's longer. <laughs> um, the other reason, I mean, that we've been, and it's important to think about this, I think, is that this might be true particularly of my generation. I mean, I'm about turned 42. It's probably, I'm about the cutoff, kind of the end of Generation X before the internet started. <laughs> um, and so when I was growing up at school before computers, we, I wasn't writing in, in a lot of contexts. So I wasn't writing text messages or emails. I was, when I learned to write, I was learning to write in and for formal contexts, essays and that sort of thing. Um, and that makes me not a particularly good code switcher, you know, between those registers of English. But it also means that I've done something bad, which is I've attached the idea of correctness to that formal register of English. Does that make sense for everyone? I mean, we do speak in lots of registers and write in lots of registers. Think of register as an outfit that your words are wearing. Um, and if you've grown up in my generation, you tend to think, oh, that's what we did at school, so it's got to be more correct. You go up, register. Um, editors understand register to be correct only through the lens of context, just like outfit. So I want you to think, who in my life comes down from above and puts, gets everyone to put a top hat and tails on their writing? Because that's kind of not getting registered totally right. Does that make sense? So, yeah. So the other reason you go to the passive is you're making that. What's interesting about the formal register of English, if you look at it grammatically, and I guess from a linguistic perspective, is that it is just a big grab bag of distancing and softening strategies. So the formal register is always longer and there's a lot of hedging and padding that goes in. It's a politeness set of tools. Think of the formal register like the British. No offence to the British, but you know, it's very standoffish. <laughs> the Australian government in its style manual has a good statement on the formal register. And they describe it. They say both the grammar and vocabulary of the formal register keep readers at arm's length, require more effort to decipher, and may reduce comprehension of what is being said. <laughs> then they go on to say, indeed, gobbledygook can often be a byproduct of would-be formal style. If something's happening, why not say so? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, um, but I want you to observe that what you're doing when you go up register is putting a heap of distancing and padding in that makes things harder to process. Okay, so this is the test. It's called the Richard Nixon test. If you want to figure out if you're in the passive, go to the most famous passive statement ever made, which is mistakes were made. <laughs> Richard Nixon. Actually, I think this is Richard Nixon's lawyer said this after Watergate. But you can attach this to any president. Ronald Reagan said this after the Iran-Contra scandal and Clinton said it after Lewinsky. So I think we might soon get another one. <laughs> anyway, so I call it the Richard Nixon test, which is, this is passive. How can we tell? Mistakes were made. And then you can hear a sneaky little, by Richard Nixon. See how that's just at the end? That's right. So really just listen out for that. If you hear a sentence and you, you can hear a sneaky little, oh, Richard Nixon, what you know is that there's no doer of the action in the grammatical subject. Does that make sense? So a really nice way of defining active is just see how the doer is in the subject. Okay, I had this the other day because our wheelie bin got stolen from our street in, in Collingwood. I had to go down to the town hall and fill out a lot of paperwork to get a new wheelie bin. And then I got to the front and it was long queue and the guy said, your paperwork will be processed. Can you hear it? By Richard Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> so how would he have said that actively? I will process, yeah. And do you see how suddenly, oh, there's someone's going to do it. And there's a doer, there's a human at the front of the sentence. Um, so listen for your Richard Nixons, and then you, you can think, oh, can I put a doer in the subject? Here's one. 
you will be contacted along the journey with SMS updates. Can you hear the Richard? You will be contacted by Richard Nixon. Yeah. As soon as you hear it, you go, ooh, we'll contact you. All right. You got it? That's a quick strategy. Um, so when people say write actively, that's, I guess, the grammatical definition. They're saying put a doer in the subject. And there's a lot of benefits. You know, suddenly humans appear in sentences. The sentences get shorter. All that's good. Um, don't slavishly follow it, though. It's not a rule of grammar. I think your writing nice, has to be a nice mix of active and passive. Just be a judicious chooser, please, of the passive voice. That's all I have to say. We're going to branch out now because people say write actively, but they don't just, when they say that, they don't just mean write in the active voice. They mean a whole bunch of other stuff. And when I see people say write actively, I often want to poke them, just to give them a bit of a poke. And I then sort of imagine they fall apart after my third poke because it's like, what do you actually mean? <laughs> so we're just going to explore the other stuff that people mean when they say let's write actively. Sometimes they just mean use the imperative. The imperative is a mood of the verb that we use when we're giving instructions. Think small. Apply now. Add sugar. Go away. Can you see in this, in this sentence structure, we put the verb first. There it is. And some of you are thinking, oh, Penny, how come that gets a full stop? That hasn't got the subject-verb pair. Like, where's the subject? Right? I'm getting a few blank looks. No, you're okay. There is a subject and it's a hidden one and it's you. You think. Yeah, so it's like you add, you go, you think. That's why the, um, the admin of the 60s really seized on this because someone, when something's in the imperative, the reader's already involved before the sentence even starts. It's like grammatical manipulation. <laughs> and we're rediscovering this now when people do user experience design for websites because they, they'll split test the call to action buttons and one button will have a noun on it like shop, <laughs> and the other button will have browse here, and the second button always wins. We don't know why, it's, but it's grammatical manipulation. So the imperative is quite good and short and useful, especially if you're talking directly to people. What else? I want you to be suspicious of adverbs, and I'm aware that this is a cliche of writing teaching. I'm aware of this. <laughs> Joni is laughing. <laughs> um, however, I will stick to it. I'm still going to say be suspicious of adverbs. The Pope recently Mark Twain, here he's speaking out against substitute damn every time you're inclined to write very. Your editor will delete it and the writing will be just as it should be. <laughs> very is perhaps the worst adverb of all. It's a very bad adverb. Um, here's the Pope recently speaking out against not only adverbs but also adjectives. <laughs> he said, we have fallen into the culture of adjectives and adverbs and we have forgotten the strength of nouns. This is the Pope giving feedback to his communications team at the Vatican. Um, <laughs> Well, that's a great question. Why nouns? So the Pope here is talking about adjectives and adverbs, which are the two, we call them the modifiers. They're the, they're the, word, the parts of speech that turn up. Don't do anything on their own, really. They just change other things. So an adjective will always change a noun. Like I will say, um, I could say jumper, and then I could say red jumper. Right, so adjective just changes a noun. Adverbs change lots of other things, so they modify in lots of ways. Bad copy, when I say bad copy, often o relies too much on these modifiers. So you will say, you'll see copy that says, it's an extremely unique experience. And if you take away all the modifier, what are you left with? Experience. And I sometimes, I think, well, I had an experience on the toilet this morning, you know? <laughs> like, what's an experience? <laughs> it's what, what I would call, you know, that sort of writing is all sizzle, no sausage. 
It's like in the end, it's, it's, it's the noun that convinces people. Um, and the Pope specifically was uh, reacting against people writing, well, um, what does it mean to be authentically Christian? And Pope, the Pope's like, well, you're either Christian or you're not. That's what, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, okay. So be alive to your modifiers. They're not doing the real work. So let's have a look at adverbs. They modify in lots of ways. And you don't have to get the grammar of this. What you'll notice about adverbs is they mostly end in L-Y. So he drove quickly, subject verb. And then you see, do you see how that adverb quickly modifies the verb? He drives a super shiny Holden. They've got an adjective shiny. Then you go, how shiny? Super shiny. Adverb modifies the adjective. Then we can go, she moved quite slowly. We've got she moved. Slowly modifies the verb moved. And then you go, how slowly? Quite slowly. Quite modifies the adverb <laughs> slowly. So you can stack them up. Um, that little stack of adverb onto adjective, adverb onto verb, the reader has to go like, this thing, but change it a bit. And sometimes they have to change it again. So it's a lot of work and they get this really foggy result. Um, in, in English is a ridiculous language, but it's also very rich. So hiding behind that, kind of adjective adverb stack is always a really pointy, resolved, vivid word. Like I could say, that's a nice jacket. What colour is it? And you can either go, it's, you can go, it's bluish yellow. Or you can go, it's green. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Or I can go, he drove quite quickly down St Kilda Road. Or I can go, he hooned. Do you feel it? Yeah. I want to observe that adverbs, um, they do one of two things. They're either going to dial it up or they're going to dial it down. Now, a dial-down adverb is, a, is, is, is one – well, a dial-up adverb is, all, is the sizzle that you see. So it's like it was highly beneficial. It was extremely convincing, you know, that stuff. And actually, ironically, it's deeply unconvincing. So dial-up. Dial-down is when you say things like, it's generally true or it was largely proven. You know, do you see how it just leaks out? I came out of a, sho a shopping centre. You know, you came out of the car park of a shopping centre on Chapel Street last week and in the food court, and there was a shop called Mostly $2. <laughs> Literally, that's what it's called. And I was like, well, what is it, $1,000? Do you see how, it, like, it just doesn't mean anything? So dial down, dial up. Either way, not great, like, and a lot of work for the reader. So I want you to look behind that little stack every time, and it, you look for the L-Y words and go, what's hiding behind that? Um, Helen has another book. I, I call her Helen. I would love to meet her. I don't really know her. But The Writer's Diet, I bought this. And guess what? Not recipes. I thought it was going to be affordable recipes. <laughs> she should do like a companion piece that's like, you know, noodles and stuff. Um, anyway, but she, it's not, but it's grammar. So she's got this whole chapter where you go, here's a, what if Helen says, she walked happily towards her car. There we go, walked Happily. What's better than that? Stack. Walked happily. Would you? Jaunted. Oh, that's a good one. No one's ever said that. Yeah, jaunted. Or like sauntered would also work. Yeah, there's so many options. She walked drunkenly towards her car. Yes, yeah, stumbled, staggered. Like just look. Yes, yeah, sashayed. She walked absentmindedly towards her car. Meandered? Yeah. It's, do you see it? So I want you to look. Every time you see the L-Y word, just look for what's hiding behind it. I hope, I've, I, I hope I've convinced you. I tend to use, I will sometimes use this tool. It's called the Hemingway app. 
you open it up and you dump your text into it and then you see how it judges you there on the right-hand column. It tells you whether you've, you know, and, and it gives you a rating. And if you start using this app, I want you to know that you're aiming for the low. You want to go to the, that's like an unadorned thought, pure, pure thought. Um, or as I might say, closer to the elephant. You know what I mean in, that, in terms of that Rodan idea? So sometimes I'll use it just to find adverbs. I mean, it's, it's easy to find adverbs because they often end in L-Y, but you, can, but you can find your adverbs. Why do I do it? I think it's because when you look back on your own writing, you always feel shame to some degree. And ever since I've been aware of adverbs, I've noticed my shame clusters around the adverbs. Those are the bits where I'm not sure what I was saying or I'm really trying to dial something up in an unconvincing manner. Or I was worse, I wasn't courageous enough to say a thing. <laughs> so I just did an adverb smoke bomb. And then you just run away. Those are the bits where you're not being funny. You're like, you just, it's okay, right. So adverbs are a liar's tell. I've said to you just look for the LYs, but there are some really significant adverbs. I just used one, just. Um, very quite so, of course, in fact. Um, what you'll find is in your sentences, they're like packing peanuts between the main action. That's how I imagine them. They always will buffer. And sometimes we use adverbs as part of what linguists would call a, a politeness strategy. So this is a plug-in that I have for my Gmail and it tells me when I'm apologising in my emails. So it underlines the word sorry and, and it'll say, using sorry frequently undermines your gravitas and makes you appear unfit for leadership. <laughs> but it doesn't just underline the explicit apology, it underlines adverbs because those are part of the softening. I'm just writing, just, it's that little packing peanut that softens. Um, so that's, this is what is called a negative politeness strategy. Um, and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, people have, some people use positive politeness strategies. If you're using a politeness strategy, that's good because it means you're not a psychopath. Um, so please don't, don't um, denigrate yourself if this is your politeness strategy. That's fine. Um, a negative politeness strategy is like a knock at the door. It's sort of like you're going, I know I'm having an impact on you, you know, whereas a positive politeness strategy is more like, you go, you barge through the door, but you're really positive. Like you give people compliments and stuff. Both are good. Um, I, my more common adverb that I use in email, though, is, is not, not a dial down one like this, but a dial up one. I'm so sorry for my late reply. So sorry. And so is an adverb, modifying sorry. And you think, well, it's dialing it up. It's make you know, you're getting a bit sorrier. But in, yeah, but it's still a buffer. Like, it's harder to say, I'm sorry, than it is to say, I'm so sorry. Okay. So I hope that I have convinced you to be suspicious of adverbs. We're going on to prepositions, and then we're going to pull all this together after verbs. Prepositions, to seek and destroy. This is the cliff notes to cutting your work in half. <laughs> Prepositions are funny little words in our sentences. They're function words like these, of, in, by, to, with, for, at. Um, they're prepositioned. <laughs> we preposition them before nouns. Like this. Can you see how we just use them to introduce nouns? I drove to the shops. The plane flew over. The building. Those, do you see how they're, they're prepositioned? 
some languages have lots of post positions as well. We have a few that I can always only think of one, notwithstanding. That's a post position, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's mainly prepositions in English. Um, all of these sentences are really great, right, what we, left to right sentences. They're great. We need the prepositions. The thing is you can really overuse prepositions. And when you're doing that, what you're not left to right anymore, what you're looping through the sentences like a full-on roller coaster for the reader. So I'll give you a, a double loop sentence. We'll take of and on, two prepositions. And I'll go, the baristas of Melbourne have too much hair on their faces. <laughs> two loops. And if I want to cut those loops, I have to kill the of and the on. So how do we kill the of? The baristas of Melbourne. Melbourne's baristas, yeah. Have to, and now kill the on. Have too much hair on their faces. Hairy faces, love it. So Melbourne's baristas have hairy faces. <laughs> now it's left to right. So more than anything else, those loops around prepositions are adding length without value to your sentences. That's why William Zinser says most drafts can be cut by 50%. It becomes just a seek and destroy mission. You don't have to know grammar. You have to be able to find prepositions. <laughs> so here's our terrible sentence. Just find a way, and I'll send you a preposition finder. <laughs> and then you, just, you find them and make them purple. And then you go, how do I rewrite this to get rid of all the purple words? <laughs> and you kind of don't have to know grammar. You just reword it. And you try not to reintroduce any. And then you go, don't stop there. Just keep going. Bam. <laughs> it's just a real leap forward. Um, and... I'll, this is the preposition finder that I've found. It's actually the website for Helen's book, The Writer's Diet, which is, once again, not recipes. Um, but I just put my text in and the prepositions come up in green. Um, really, you can just memorise of, in, by, at, for, with, to. Those are the ones that are causing loops. Um, lucky last, are you ready for... This is verb revival. So this is let your verbs live, please. Let them live the lives they, they dream of. <laughs> <laughs> we are, we'd never let our verb, we, we've, we, we often will not let our verbs live. And by that I mean, we'll say, we engaged in a planning process. What do we do though? Yeah, see what I'm saying? <laughs> That's planned there is a verb that wants to live, it's life as a verb. <laughs> we planned. <laughs> do you see how I sort of shunted it down the sentence? Or in a politics you often hear, um, we issued... An apology. <laughs> Can you feel it? What do we do though? Apologize. <laughs> and so I've kind of, my verb there is issued, we issued, and then I'm just hiding the apology down the end. Um, so we sort of shunt that action down out uh, uh, into a noun. Um, and I think the reason people do it is that subconsciously we might be aware that readers l look for verbs first. They really are the most important word in a sentence. That's how we make sense of the sentence. And I think if you're a bit afraid of people seeing truth, you don't want to put the action there, you, so you replace it with something else. Um, this process often involves turning your happy little verb into a noun. So rather than saying, we informed, you'll say, we provided them with the information. <laughs> so you turn informed into information. It's often you add an ation. Unite, unity. That's a noun version of a verb. This process is called, somewhat ironically, nominalization. It means turn verb into noun. Um, Helen Sword has a better... Oh, here we go. Here's some more lovely examples. Held a consultation with... Consulted. <laughs> Helen, 
Helen has a really good term for this, which isn't nominalization. She calls it zombification. Um, there's a really famous article that um, Helen Sword wrote in the New York Times in 2012 called Zombie Nouns, where she describes how we all nominalize everything. And, and, and um, here's an example from it. So the cause of obfuscation of meaning is the placement of action in nouns. <laughs> and I'm showing you on the screen where your eye lands. You're probably not conscious of it, but the way people read this sentence is they read is. And then they turn it into, in their brain goes, X is Y. And then they process that stuff that's inside. And so just there's, there's some action buried. Can you feel the obscuring in the placing? Yeah. Those are nominalized. Look at the power of turning those, letting them live as verbs. It's powerful, isn't it? <laughs> and it's not just because I've like put the verbs in green. It's because that's where your eye lands to make sense of the sentence. So it's like the truth lives in the verbs, whether you want to put it there or not. Um, I, you can some, you can, sometimes you use nominalization as a way of being diplomatic. Like um, Jen could have said to me earlier, um, <laughs> due to social media investment to date, there has been low awareness of this grammar event. Or she could have said, people don't know about this grammar event because you haven't spent enough on social media. Do you see the difference? So if you don't want to say something, you can bury it um, by nominalizing the action. Um, it, so use it for good or evil, but it's a power. Um, here are a bunch of nominalizations in a sentence. Lots of nouns. And do you see how the nominalization is usually an innation? Yeah, so we've got the top three lines are all buried action, proliferating, nominalizing, forming, indicating, tending. The bottom line is buried description, pompous, abstract. We've nominalized some adjectives. And then once you've figured out what you're burying, just go, what do I want to revive? Like, just pick some stuff. That's a nice translation of that sentence. It's got a few courage verbs, as I say. Um, a real trick, apart from that your words end in Asian, that your burying action is that your, your whole sentence is based around a form of the verb to be. So is, has been, was, were, are. She's right. When you've got a be verb, it's an equal sign. Nothing happens. Penny equals over-caffeinated. <laughs> Do you feel it? Is. So if you've got lots of ises, you know that there's action somewhere there that could be living a better life. So you go, uh-oh, ises. And when I see lots of his, I just, I sort of look away and I go, what's this sentence about, really? And I go, okay, it's about the origins of viruses. Courage verb. Viruses originate. Can you, is everyone sort of comfortable that that word is the verb? You can tell that it's, it's, the subject's glued onto it. It's where the action is. And try and put some real meaning there. We discovered how capability was connected to the roles, responsibilities, and relationship between what? There's our clue. See our B verb. And then once you see it, you go, well, how can I just rewrite this with action in the middle of it? Like action at the heart of it? Courage verbs? Is this making sense? Let's look at another one. Here's a telco that's trying to get credit for its mobile network infrastructure. <laughs> Not doing a great job. And you say, well, dudes, what'd you do? Do you see how that's what they did? Courage verbs. <laughs> 
Um, some of them are passive and active, but and, and this is related definitely because when you pull something from the passive to the active, you, you're forced to put real action in the verb. You're forced to use an, 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 yeah, an active verb and you're forced to put a doer in the subject too, which, yeah, so... But you agree that these are courageous verbs. Yeah. I often say, start your drafts with the, with the verbs. Like, we'll often teach people who, who couldn't give two hoots about grammar. They, they just want to get things done. They're construction industry project managers. They're just annoyed that people don't do what they say in the email, you know? And I say, well, Terry, just start with the verbs. That's your draft. And he says, what's a verb? And I don't know. It doesn't matter. Just what's going to happen? And he'll go all right, well, I've got to call Matt. Good, call. Okay, then we're going to survey the site. Survey, good. Then we're going to build, just write down all the actions and use that as the basis for the email because then you won't write construction must commence on... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a quick put the verbs first and then build everything around it. Um, here we go. From education and business to socialising and entertainment, there are many benefits of NBA. There's our B verb. That's our clue. It's like, what's the real action? <gasps> See how it's a kind of, what will it do though? <laughs> yeah, okay. So we're going to now do a technique that you can all take away with you for the rest of your lives. It's called paramedic editing. Um, that is its name. I'm just not calling it that because of the general world environment at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> paramedic editing is a thing you can Google. Like there is a method of editing that's sentence slashing. Um, now, can you help me, Jody? Because I've got a, um, we're going to give a set of these to each person. There's no real hurry. Oh, hang on. I can't make, will you do it? Um, Joni's coming around with some handouts. So while he's doing that, I'm going to get my little um, board out and we're going to do paramedic editing. I hope this changes your life. It changed mine. Is everybody equipped with their little form almost? I'll take you through the steps on the screen anyway. They're on your handout as well. So when we do a paramedic edit on a sentence, we do these steps. So the first one will be we're going to underline our prepositions. Now, you'll see as Joni comes around that I've given you a little cheat list of the really common prepositions on the left-hand side of your orange sheet. If you look in the left column, you'll see common prepositions. Um, then we're going to the next step is going to be we're going to circle our B verbs. And I've also given you a little cheat list of really common B verbs. Then we're going to go, where's the action? Is it buried somewhere in a zombie noun? <laughs> uh, and then we're going to do the other steps. Now, I have a step zero in my own paramedic method, which is <gasps> squint at your adverbs. <laughs> um, so we're going to do a really easy one first. The decision was made by our publisher yesterday. So our first step will be to squint at our adverbs. Okay, we don't have any adverbs. <laughs> we'll move on to prepositions. Can you see any prepositions? You can use your cheat list. By, yep, and that's a really significant preposition. When you've got a by, most of the time that's telling you that what comes after it is in the Richard Nixon position. <laughs> can you feel it? So by is significant. Now we'll go to under, circle our B verbs. What, can you see a B verb? Yep. So... That tells us there's action here that could be living a better life. Can you see any buried action in this sentence? Yes. The deciding is buried in decision. That's a zombie noun. And ision is a big clue. So that's diagnostics. Now we're going to move to sentence slashing. 
You'll see that step four, we say, move the doer into the subject. And there's a way, there's another way of thinking about that step, which is even maybe simpler, and just say, we're going to destroy as many prepositions as we can. If you destroy as many prepositions as you can, you'll be forced to move the doer into the subject. So let's go, how do we get rid of that by? Yes. Could you re-express that? Yep. So we're going to get rid of the by by pulling the publisher up. And, and what just happened was we went from passive to active because we're pulling our doer up into the subject, our publisher. And that gets rid of the by. Okay, good. Now, we could go halfway. We could go, our publisher made the decision. Or we could go, what really happened though? <laughs> Decided. Do you see how we've now revived the verb? Our publisher decided yesterday. So paramedic. Okay, that was an easy one to start with. We're going to do a harder one now. You ready? Whoop. The employees currently working at this company are in need of a better management system for their finances. Okay, step zero, squint at your adverbs. I can see one currently. You know what? It's got to go. It's like <laughs> A, if they're the employees, then yes, they currently work here. And B, it's sort of just me being a bit wanky which is often what's happening with adverbs. <laughs> okay, so let's go to uh, prepositions. Can you see any prepositions? Yep, of and at. Yep, in. Yep, for. Disastrous. Four prepositions is disastrous for a sentence is short. So we're going to go to forms of the verb to be. What can you see? Yep, ah. Uh, so we know there's action here that's living a better life, that could live a better life. When there are prepositions really close to the front of the sentence, I tend to go straight to preposition destruction um, rather than worrying about anything else because it's, it's efficient. So how do we get rid of this at? It's a loop. Remember the baristas of Melbourne? It's the same sort of loop. Yep, this company's employees. Great. So we've, gotten, we've got rid of the at. This company's employees. Now connect them to some real action. Need. Do you see how? Now our verb is living. And then this goes. And now we're going to cut this loop around the four. A better finance management system. Or I would say if it's a system, it manages. So it's a finance system. <laughs> this company's employees need a better finance system. Okay, good. It's quite invigorating, isn't it? All right, let's, get, let's, let's go. This is from a medical insurance company website. Consideration will be given by the committee to the provision of policy advice on this issue in the near future. I can't see any adverbs, so we'll go to prepositions. What can you see? By, our favourite, to, of, in, on. Disastrous. So, forms of the verb to be? Be. <laughs> Good. And this is a um, passive verb form, so it's multi-word verb. The whole verb is will be given. That's the verb. So given is in the verb. There's, there's action that's a lot more buried. Can you see any buried action? Uh, yes, it is. But what are the zombie nouns? Like what's the, yeah, the considering is buried in consideration. What are, what's our, the two more zombies. Yep. Wow, you got the most buried zombie of all. The advising is buried in advice. The providing is buried in provision. Okay, so we've got it. We've, no, we've, no, we've noticed what's buried. So now we'll go to step the next step, which is actually preposition destruction. So how do we kill this by? 
Yeah, the committee. Do you see how we're forced to pull the doer into the subject when we destroy prepositions? Okay, the committee, what will they do? We'll consider. Yes, we revived our first verb. We'll consider. What will they consider? Providing. Yep. Consider providing. They're dropping like flies. Policy advice. Now, I can think of an easy way of getting rid of one of these guys. What's the same as in the near future? Soon. Yeah. Some of you are so, like, such big grammar nerds that you're like, oh, Penny, soon is an adverb. And it is, because that was an adverbial. But I feel like it can stay for now. It feels important. So we'll say, we've gone from consideration will be given by the committee to the provision of policy advice on this issue in the near future, to the committee will consider providing policy advice on this issue soon. And now you think, oh, we're a bit closer to the elephant now. You start to hear it. We haven't lost any information, but you start to think, Hang on, why are we writing this if we're only considering it? Do you see how it's a little bit more obvious that you're avoiding stuff? I'm going to propose at this point, for the first time, information loss. I think we have to lose the considering. <laughs> and if you're at work, you'll probably have to get permission from the executive team or something or go to the lawyers. But let's say they say, all right, we can say that we'll provide it. <laughs> that means that we can revive our verb. The committee will provide. Yeah. But you know what? Why stop there? Let's just do it. The committee will advise on this policy issue soon. Bam. I, I sort of want you to think it can be super tempting when you're doing this to, to go fast, to go, oh, yeah, I know what I'm going to do. And then you just kind of jump forward. And that's how I used to do it. But I realised I was adding more loops in sometimes. I was dropping more adverbs in. So now I do it very mechanically. I'm like, Preposition destruction, one by one. Verb revival, one by And then you notice what information goes. So I think that mechanical approach is good. The other thing I think you realise is we lose all that padding that, that comes with the formal register of English. Like this becomes less formal. <laughs> it becomes more direct. And that can make people at your office a bit nervous. <laughs> and what I want you to do is sort of don't let that into your head as an editor. I want you to almost be two elemental forces. Like as an editor, for the f first, you're the lava. You just burn through the landscape, like right to the, the essential thought. Then you're, then you're the sea. You go, oh, that's a bit too direct. <laughs> I'll step back. I'll pull it back into the passive or, you know, if you add, need to add some softening. Does that make sense? Yeah. I also want to caution you about that moment. You know when we switch from in the near future to soon? You know that moment? And there is part of your brain or it's someone in your, at your work who goes, oh, there's a bit of a difference between in the near future and soon, you know, that discussion. And I just want you to notice when you head down that cul-de-sac because none of us lives long enough to have that discussion. There is no difference between in the near future and soon. <laughs> Question in the back. Hang on, I'm coming over. Oh, no, here we go. I guess you don't really need soon because the committee will provide already means it's in the future. That's a very interesting point that you make because now we're talking about, if we talk about losing the soon, to a small extent, I think we're talking about information loss because at least we know it's not happening in three years. Do you know what I mean? But the way, I think that's actually the power of doing this because you start to realise to what extent is that contributing information and then you might go, well, not enough. It can go. 
you know, but it's, I think doing this shows you that line very clearly. Yeah. Um, I do want none of, none of you here to get into any sort of discussion about the difference between in the near future and soon at your work. If you find yourself arguing about that, just go, oh, hang on, why aren't we sailing on the 5th of July? <laughs> That's, you know what I mean? It's just don't spend it. There's no difference. And you can call me or email me if you need me to arbitrate that. Or you, yeah. <laughs> Until 6 p.m. I'll answer that, those phone calls. Um, all right. So I wanted to do when we're talking directly to people because a lot of us write directly to customers. So to help us respond to you faster, please assist us by providing some more information as to what your inquiry related to. <laughs> All right, so we're going to do adverbs, and there are two adverbs here. They're not easy to spot. The first one is faster, and the second one is some. Um, and I am going to say some doesn't pass my squint test because I feel as though there's not enough difference between some more and more. I just want it to go. But I feel as though faster to, at the moment feels sort of important, and I'm going to let it stay, and then we'll see. All right, so let's go to prepositions. What do you got? We've got two. Yep, we've got our favourite old buy. We've got as to, to, and this, this is exempt. That to help, that's an infinitive verb form. Yeah, so it's not a preposition. So we'll go to forms of the verb to be. We don't have a be verb here, but we do have the next best thing, which is a word that ends in Asian. If you've got a word that ends in Asian, it is a zombie noun, okay? So we're going to go to preposition destruction. How do we get... Oh, this one's easy, right? We'll just go to help us respond faster. Okay. Please. How do we kill, kill the buy? Provide. Yep. More information. I heard someone say something. Yes, you're, you're too advanced for this class, you... <laughs> You're four steps ahead of everyone. <laughs> um, if you want to kill one of these prepositions, and we're doing it mechanically, what's an easy way of getting rid of one of them? It's on the tip of your tongue, isn't it? Regarding, someone say, or about. Yeah. You could just change that one into the preposition about. It's still a preposition, but it means we can do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now we've gone to, to help us respond faster, please provide more information about your inquiry. Pretty good. Let's go to verb revival. So now we're almost at your step that you were doing. So to help us respond faster, please inform. What's a better word than inform even? Yes. Tell. Us more. And I'm going to say they know it's about their inquiry because they're on the inquiries page of the website. <laughs> and now let's keep going. Tell me the elephant. What's all the way to the elephant? What's the, the, it's the core thought? Tell us more. You were too polite even. <laughs> Tell us more. Yeah. And then, so that's you. And then you go, oh, that's a bit rude. All right, I'll step back. <laughs> Do you see how to go all the way? And then go, okay, I'll add some padding back in. Yeah. It's kind of, I really encourage you to do it mechanically because you'll notice that information loss and then you'll be like, oh, well, yes, I know what padding I can add back in. Um, I do want to show you that last step. So we'll do one more. What is a slow wind-up? A slow wind-up's that thing. A lot of people do it when they write theses. The theses are full of slow wind-ups. Like, this chapter will contend that. Or um, when you, you know you haven't had enough coffee at work and you're always starting statements like, ah, 
the minister wishes to announce and everyone's like, yeah, we know because it's a ministerial announcement. It's sort of like, I'm of the opinion that, you know, it's that run up. That's a slow wind up. <laughs> so here's a, here's a classic slow wind up. Often the fact that it seems to you a certain is implicit. So you can go, can I just get rid of that? That's a not, if you can, do it because it gets people closer to the, the start of the action. So then we can just, then I would just go, oh, here we go, adverb. Look how desperate I am there. <laughs> it's got to go. Uh, and then we could go, what do we got? Of, to, of, in. And then we could say is. Is is our B verb. And it's pointing there. So then we could go paramedic, editing. What does it do? <laughs> improve. What does it improve? Business writing. Ah! It's so calming. Yeah. Like it's like, and what I really want you to feel is that you don't have to know grammar to do this. You really just need that cheat list. You have to be able to find prepositions, find your B verbs, and then be suspicious of adverbs. And I, th I feel as though every sentence is sort of practice from now on. You know, it's like more than anything, you'll be start to be aware of, of, in, by, at, for, with, to. Those are the things that are looping everything up. Okay. So, I do have a challenge for you at this point. You'll see that underneath your handouts, you've got a little pack of puffy sentences. And I encourage you to work in groups. Choose one to do together as, as a pair or a group uh, and see if you can follow the steps and, and slash your chosen sentence. I'll come round and help you if you need it. All right. Uh, you will have more time at the end to perfect your entry before you hand it in to me. Um, does anyone want to tell me what or volunteer their edit for that first exercise? Discussions will be undertaken by the executive team with respect to the audit of pencil supplies. Oh, we've got a hand up. Oh, cut, wait till Joni comes around and read us what you, what you came up with. The executive team will discuss auditing pencils. Ooh, discuss auditing pencils. Very interesting. And shorter even than I probably would have managed to do. I had in my head, the executive team will discuss the pencil supplies audit. But you took that and turned it into auditing pencil supplies, a gerund phrase, which I think is very elegant. Well done. <laughs> what about, there was a hard, really hard one, I think. The communications department will initiate a review of complaints received from followers of our Facebook page. Do we have any uh, volunteers there? Does anyone feel confident about that one? Do you feel good in the front row about that second one? Would you like to read out your one? The communications department will review Facebook followers' complaints. Lovely. Oh, and that one was such an interesting one because when you're trying to cut that final loop, you know, complaints received from followers of our Facebook page. It's sort of actually two loops, isn't it? Like two prepositions. And you do go to that stack. You end up with Facebook page follower complaints. You know, that sort of stacking. Um, and I don't, I think you actually eliminated a word in yours, didn't you? You said, um, yeah, um, we'll review Facebook follower complaints. So you lost the page. And I think that's quite nice. I think you want, I want you to be aware of that stack that can sometimes emerge when you're getting rid of loops. Yeah, but really elegant. Um, okay, so 
I hope this becomes part of your life now. It certainly will eliminate the words that add length without value and leave room for the words that do add value. Uh, so if you don't feel pressure, keep thinking about your competition entry. Um, but I'm just going to give you a few more slashing and editing tips before, before our day concludes. Um, let's... Uh, oh, having ADHD is just walking around your house thinking, where's my phone? But you're holding your phone. <laughs> That's what I just did with the click. Okay. So I want to talk to you about a few. Well, actually, I've got this inspiration for you. I saw this on Twitter. And here is his Jack from Twitter announcing that Twitter's going from 140 to 280 characters. And here's this heroic woman editing him back down to 139. <laughs> she Small change, big move. 140 was arbitrarily based on SMS limits. Proud of the team for solving a real problem while maintaining our essence. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and you will find it's true. You can get 50% off. Yep. Um, so let's now talk about some other, I guess, generous to the reader editing strategies that will help you to bring things to life, make you most of your page space for readers. Um, it's really this section I want to describe it as, can everyone see who's on the screen? Is everyone familiar with the TV show Game of Thrones? <laughs> and even if you haven't watched it, which I couldn't manage to watch the whole thing, but I do know who Jon Snow is. Jon Snow is the character who was always focused on the real enemy, the invading zombie hordes from the north. Jon Snow didn't spend his time piddling around down in King's Landing. <laughs> and that's what I need you to be as editors because there's not enough time to edit. And that's true for the rest of your life. <laughs> So you really, you have to be like a triage nurse. You have to pick your battles. And I want to talk about the battles worth picking. I mean, obviously, cutting is an excellent battle worth picking. <laughs> We've done a bit of that. Um, but the two things I'd like to look at here are, are, are really we're going to talk about style and then grammar as things to navigate and that they're different things. So style, let's define it. It's not, look at Jane Burke and she's so stylish in those sunglasses. <laughs> I don't mean that. <laughs> when I say style, I mean something more like the way style is used on uh, uh, the Chicago Manual of Style or the Australian Government Style Manual. What does that mean, really? When we use that word, what we mean is this is a set of decisions that has been made in a context to ensure consistency. The key words for style are decisions consistency. And the problem, I think, look, here's Daryl Christian, former AP Stylebook editor, consistency is absolutely critical to credibility. That's one of the main reasons that style guides exist. Um, and consistency helps readers even on a subliminal level. It's just they sort of, your approach to capitalising is so consistent that they sort of get it in an underlying way, like they understand what the proper nouns are, or even just like, all your headings are capitalised the same way, so they know where they are in a document. You know, it's kind of subliminal. Um, but I think there's a the problem with style, and here are, here's a whole a whole stack of different style guides. Is that this whole a style, what these guides do is that they navigate a grey area, like in this universe of punctuating and grammar, this grey area where things aren't wrong and then and they aren't right. <laughs> There are just multiple ways of doing the things. And the problem is that usually people have read one book about punctuation and grammar in their life, and unfortunately that book was a style guide. 
and they mistook that book for the Lord's Guide to Grammar Eternal, you know, <laughs> and they end up calling my ABC segment and trying to get everyone to use Oxford commas or, you know. That argument, trying to enforce one set of style decisions is a real time waster. And I think when you look back on your education, you, what, what you often realise is, oh, wow, that teacher was just really enforcing a style decision that, you know, if I suddenly work at the Times of London will no longer be relevant, you know. So it can be so useful and time-saving to get rid of these kind of ideas and just understand that style isn't right or wrong and just be cool with navigating it. So here are some examples. I mean, and if you sign up to get the links, I'll send you heaps of examples of style guides so you can have a look through and almost deprogram yourself. You'll be like, oh, there are six ways of doing that. And it's like, fine. <laughs> um, so... I'll just tell you a few of these, just so you're sort of aware of what I, I guess I'm, I'm talking about. A really um, big area where style comes into play is quotation marks. And I think the two decisions that you'll really notice are the first one will be uh, single or double <laughs> or a mix of the two. That's a, so when I say single, you know, Australian government style says, well, we're going to use single quotes for everything, whether we're attributing a spoken or written source or we're being sarcastic, or we're talking about, you know, a song. Chicago style, it says, please use double for everything. Double. Associated press style says, please use double when you're attributing a spoken or written quote and single if you're being sarcastic. Do you see what I mean? Lots of people are really familiar with associated press style. I think just because we see it all the time, it's in publications. Um, the second style decision that's to do with quote marks is punctuating around them. And on the top of the screen, I'm sort of showing you what I think of as really kind of Commonwealth British kind of style. We, we'll put our full stop there. We'll put our comma there. And, and it's us saying, we think those punctuation marks belong to the sentence, not to the quote. Whereas in American style, much more commonly, this is Chicago style. Do you see how they put it inside? And they're not wrong. They're not right. They're just, they're just American. Like it's just, you know, like it's not about wrong or right. Does that make sense? In a way, this is calming. Yeah. Um, oh, you can't really see, but there's a page from the Chicago. See where they put their full stop? It's really unfamiliar to us. Question in the back coming around, coming around to you. Sorry. When you get, I'm sorry, I'm a student. When you get a question like that on a test, what are you supposed to answer? This is such an important question, and we have some teachers over here. Um, I often get that question from students who are, who are doing exams, year 11 and 12, what they worry about is that they'll be marked down for applying a particular style. And I can't answer that question because I don't believe that a style for these exams is made explicit. Um, what I hope is that people aren't being marked down for choosing a particular style of quote marks or punctuate. They're not. Sometimes teachers have preferences, but usually there's not a lot in the actual criteria around that. Um, you would have to clarify with your own teacher, but I personally wouldn't. Yeah. No. That was such an important question that was asked and answered. Thank you, audience. Okay. Um, uh, just to keep going on this, I, I, I'll, I'll give you some other things that I sort of don't want you to worry about. You'll start to see style is like, well, what's to, A, what style applies where I am? Can I find out? B, if I can't find out, what style do I choose? And the important thing is just to be consistent, you know? Um, dashes. You know, here's the thing about dashes. As soon as you're outside of a word inside a sentence, you need to graduate up from the little hyphen <laughs> to what we call a textual dash. <laughs> the hyphen is the default mark on your keyboard. The textual dash is always going to be longer than that. If you want to do an end dash, you're going to do, what is it, control hyphen, option hyphen? It's option hyphen. 
And then if you want to do an M dash, the width of a capital M usually in the font you're in, you go option shift hyphen. You can do this on your phone. Here's a hot tip. Hold down the hyphen on your phone and it pops out a little menu. You can start putting textual dashes in your text messages. Um, but you can see that you just do have to choose. Um, here's a blog. And can you see how half of the people writing on the blog are doing a spaced N dash? And then the next half of them are doing a, what we call a closed M dash. Neither of them's wrong or right. They should just choose the same dash. Yeah. Who likes a closed M? I sort of love a closed M. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Studies are showing that, the, that, that these are less easy to read on screens. So I think that the old closed M's on its way out. Uh, what else? Possessive apostrophes. Oh, this is probably the big one. We have to limit this on my ABC segment. I only do it at Christmas because otherwise people call every, every week. <laughs> Can you see that difference between Kate Moss's wedding and Kate Moss? Wedding. So here's, here we're talking about making a possessive on a singular noun that ends in S. And this is really the only kind of style division um, in the realm of possessives. Um, the top one is more common in the world, Kate Moss apostrophe S. It's probably most style guides will ask for that. The Chicago asks for it. It's Australian style. Um, this bottom one, Kate Moss apostrophe <laughs> wedding, is, is rarer. Um, and it's, it's closely associated with the Associated Press, that, that they're the ones who have, have been famous for doing that. And some have lampooned them for it, saying, you've just been trying to save ink on all your S's <laughs> over the years, <laughs> um, which I think is funny. But the thing is, they're not wrong. I mean, it's just style. Like, here's Chris's cafe, and he's, got, he's following Chicago style. And here's Chris's, he's, he's following Associated Press style, not wrong. And here's Chris, who's following his own style, just makes his S small. <laughs> I love this, Chris. <laughs> um, controversy, Associated Press tweeted in October last year that they're thinking of shifting. Their chain, they're going to change possibly this year to, to S apostrophe S. People didn't like that. They tried to burn down the internet when they put that up. <laughs> but we'll see. That's my prediction for this year. I think it will happen April, May. Um, I, I tweeted, in Kate Moss's name, amen. I like it. <laughs> You can have an opinion about a style thing, but you shouldn't start a fight about it. Yeah. I, um, I think, you know, really the big theme of, the, of style that's emerging is that it's a super time saver. If you can just go, okay, in this office, what are all the things we do? And you can just save so much time, you know, of thinking about these things every time you come across them. Just standardise them and then that, that's it, you know. It really clears the air. It's like, yeah, this is great. Um, it stops you having arguments with people too, a little bit, you know. <laughs> I think um, a lot of the time I love to write a, even a little one-page style guide for a thing I've written, you know, if it's for a client or something. Because often people will come back and they'll have lots of feedback, which is fine, but often the feedback is just them trying to change my style. Like, so, that, so they'll go, oh, that's not how you make a possessive on a singular noun ending in S. And instead of me having that, you know, as an argument, I can just say, oh, great, do you want to change the style guide? And then I just send them the style guide. And then they're like, oh, Okay. <laughs> You know, it's like it just diffuses it. It's really quite efficient. Capitalisation is the most controversial section of any style guide. If you try to do a style guide at your work, the capitalisation section will cause you a lot of worry. People want to do a lot of interesting things with capital letters. <laughs> now, we could say, what do we use capital letters for in English? Well, we use them at the start of a sentence and we use them on proper nouns. So the names of specific things. I always, what's a proper noun? I, I would go further. I would say a proper noun is the name tag of a specific thing. Even further, I would say a proper noun is the name tag that a specific thing would be issued with if it attended a brunch. 
That's how I think of a proper noun. So generic noun, street. Proper noun, Smith Street. Can you feel it? Um, if you're trying to think, is this a proper noun? Just imagine the thing turning up to a brunch. Like imagine the University of Melbourne turns up to a brunch. What's its name tag say? See how the name tag doesn't say university. It says the University of Melbourne. I find that quite useful. I don't know. You might find that useful anyway. So style guides can intervene a little bit on what I'd think of as maybe the natural kind of standard English approach to capitalization. So you might find at your work that there's a particular word that's capitalized at your work even though it isn't a proper noun. So always read the fine print in your style guide. University of Melbourne wants to capitalize the word university even though um, that wouldn't happen in a standard English context. Um, some uh, brands you'll notice have, have a brand name that's written as a, it's as a word, right? And, and often they'll want you to also write their proper noun like that. So they'll want you to write the proper noun like the logo looks. <laughs> yes, exactly. So eBay would want you to write eBay. <laughs> or PayPal might want you to write PayPal. Um, which is not how it would appear in a standard English context. So your style guide would have to address that. Like, what are the ones we're going to let? And, and it's this, the term for this is kind of funny. It's called vanity caps. So your style guide would have a little section, vanity caps. What do we allow to have vanity caps? And it's almost like, are we opening the gates of Troy? You know, you have to think, oh, does everyone get them? Or is there only some people? Um, the other thing about capitals that you'll have to address is, what, what do we do for heading styles at different heading levels? You know? Min caps, max caps, full caps, everything caps. Job titles. Everyone's got a job title. <laughs> this screen grab is from The Bachelor US, but anywhere you look, someone's got a title. Pantrepreneur, chicken enthusiast. <laughs> People tend to want capital letters on their job title because they, I think in English what happens is, I don't know why it happens, but people use capital letters to show that things are important or they want to. That's not how we use capitals in English. We use, we use them to show that things are specific. But I think they want the capital on their job title because it's in a way thought of as respectful or, yeah. Um, the thing is, in a standard English context, most often a job title is being used descriptively. So it isn't part of a proper noun. It's, it's a generic sort of descriptive word. So you'll see, do you see how they're not capitalised? And that would be true in standard English contexts. The thing is, people want, job, they want the capitals on their job title. Do you see how... And some of you are thinking, oh, what's the difference between that and Prime Minister of Morris or Queen Elizabeth? And when you see um, role descriptors that are part of, treated as part of people's names with capitals, that's, they're being treated honorifically. You know, that the same way as we treat doctor or prince in front of William. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, so some style guides, though, will say, no, 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 we're going to intervene on that and everyone's going to get a capital all the time like this. Yeah, that's me about that. <laughs> Another question. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Sorry for asking so many questions. I know, I um, love it. Questions are great. When you've got a proper noun that yes. has two words, like Smith Street, yes. would you capitalise both words? Yes, you would. One? Yep. And, and have a look. To, style guides have a fairly standard approach for multi-word proper nouns, like, say, the University of Melbourne. And they'll ask you to use what's called max caps. So you'll capitalise the significant words. University and Melbourne, and you won't capitalise the of, and often you won't capitalise the the. But some style guides, it, you know, it's quite rare, but they'll, they'll capitalise the insignificant words as well. Um, that's an interesting question, yeah. Um, 
where wouldn't you capitalise the, the street? If you were saying Smith Street, yes, that, that is a two-word proper noun. Um, where most um, grammar guides actually and style guides would tell you to lose the S, or the capital S on street, is when it's talking about two streets. So our office is near the corner of Johnson and Smith Streets. And it's because we think of that plural streets as not belonging to either of them. Yeah, and if you want to retain both, you'd have to say Johnson Street and Smith Street. Do you feel it? Yeah, okay. So everyone got my message there, right? I kind of hate it. But the thing is, if your style guide says do it, then you're going to have to do it. <laughs> I want to caution you about capitals on job titles. I, I, I feel um, people will often use capitals to show respect. That's why they want to put a capital on marketing manager. You know, it's sort of deferential. That is a double-edged sword. You know, if people say, I want to, okay, everyone gets capitals. And I say, all right, so the marketing manager gets capitals. They say, yes, oh, marketing manager gets capitals. And I say, oh, great. And what about the cleaner? And they go, oh. Because what they realise in that moment is this isn't a system. Like, it's just a sliding scale on which at some point people go, oh, secretary's not a real job. Oh, barista's not a real job. It's like, I mean, aside from that being really kind of on the nose, it's not a system, <laughs> you know? So I always say to people who want to capitalise job titles, I say, okay, great, just make me a list of all the people at the organisation who don't get capitals. <laughs> and then they, they drop it quick. If you're using capitals to show respect, you're also using them to show disrespect. Okay, thank you. Um, so we're ending on grammar. Um, I've sort of said to you um, that, I've explained style in a way that I hope is useful to you because it helps you to be a bit of a battle picker and not call the ABC about, you know, Kate Boss's wedding. Um, so once you've got, got rid of all that, well, sort of what is the stuff? What is the stuff that Jon Snow would focus on? What are the invading zombies? The things that you should be prioritising when you're editing your own work. And I think that's where I use the word grammar. Like grammar is often used as a very encompassing term, but I think of grammar as being quite a narrow word. It's how we put words together so they make sense. <laughs> that's, what, that's what grammar is. And if you've got a grammar error, in a way, you can be explicit, like sort of categorical about it. You can say that that's wrong because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, so what is grammar? I've told you. People say, what's bad grammar? I want you to be super aware of stuff that people think of as bad grammar but actually isn't really a thing at all. Like... People can be very distracted by what grammarians and editors call the myths or superstitions of grammar. I really want you to not focus on these. <laughs> the, to give you an example, probably the most famous three myths are don't end a sentence with a preposition. Has anyone heard that one? People say that to me and I go, oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> ah, what's another one? Don't split an infinitive. Come on. Splitting infinitives is a superpower of English. It allows us a deeper level of modification. And the, the big one is this one. Don't start a sentence with a conjunction. Has anyone heard that? People call that, you know that thing, don't start a sentence with and? And I'm conscious it's such a deeply rooted thing. Someone started crying once when I was teaching because she'd been, so she was indignant. She'd been marked down five points on a uni essay because her lecturer believed this myth. It's, it's, it's one of the, it is a powerful myth. Um, the Chicago Manual of Style is asked this question so often that they published a book, but can I start a sentence with but? And I always say to our students, don't buy this book because Cliff notes, yes. Um, <laughs> the where this comes from, and it's a good way of looking at myth, um, most studies or, that look into this uh, reveal, it happens um, 
when we move as children from speaking to writing. All of us as adults, everyone in the world speaks in what we call sentence fragments. So we'll start sentences with and all the time. And then when kids go to school and they have to start writing things down, they have to start paying attention to what qualifies as a sentence, but they will write things that aren't sentences. So they'll write, oh, I went to the school and to the pool and took my boogie board and my surfboard. They'll write a sentence that's like, and my surfboard. And the teacher goes, no. And it seems, the studies show that that's the moment where the wrong message gets through. The, the kid hears, and is wrong. And my surfboard. And actually, a lot of teachers hear that too, but it's not wrong. You know, we can use and to join at every level of a sentence, clause to clause. Why would we stop at, at a full stop? Um, I mean, you can come at it logically. And people sort of won't listen to grammatical logic because they're so ingrained with it. Um, you can come at it um, just by looking to authority. There's no grammatical authority in the world, really, if you look back for 200 years or more that says you can't start a sentence with a conjunction. They all agree with me. They say you can. The Chicago says there's a long-held superstition, one with no historical or grammatical foundation, that it's wrong to start a sentence with and. <laughs> so you can call me as well. Call me overnight. It's fine. Just look anywhere you like. The shrunken one. I, people always say, well, it's a little bit casual. Don't start a sentence with and because it's just a little bit casual and inappropriate and contemporary. And I say, oh, oh, what book did I just pick up? Oops. The King James Bible, 1605. <laughs> oh, let's, oh, no. 33 sentences start with conjunctions in Genesis. It's like, gee, God did it. Is that okay? Should we call him? You know, you can find so many beautiful formal contexts. So I was looking, John McIntyre is one of my favourite editors on YouTube, and he, he gave such a wonderful example. It's um, Abraham Lincoln, second inaugural address, 1865. Pretty formal. I hope you'd agree. <laughs> Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive. And the other would accept war rather than let it perish. And the war came. Isn't that beautiful? So don't listen to that crap. <laughs> I'm just saying don't listen to myths. What is bad grammar? It's sentences that produce ambiguous meanings. <laughs> This is a lovely place to go if you're in Sydney. It's a real, it's a real um, kind of tourist destination for editors, this sign in Randwick Park. And, the poor, and they put you, put your dog in the bin, get a selfie. <laughs> this is an ambiguous pronoun, as you can see. What else do I love? This sign is horrific because at least two people are going to read it and go, oh, when does pedestrian hunting season start? <laughs> what else? A horrifying fundraiser. So, like, oh, where do I find them? In the K? In the K? How much does it cost? <laughs> this was a, a, I saw on a park bench and I thought, oh, 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 what a sad life she led. <laughs> but, but half of the people that read that and they'll think, oh, what a, that, that's so nice. Every time she do, saw a dog, she smiled. Um, so I, I kind of just want you to focus on, on stuff that produces ambiguity for readers. That's kind of where, why I care about grammar. I am... Um, I'm going to leave you with what I call the big four, um, the big four sentence level structural errors that undermine meaning. So I can be very categorical about these. Um, and, it, and, and if you would like to get a summary of these, just let me know your email address and I'll send it to you. Okay. So I'm going to do the big four. I say it. These are maybe make up 80% of what I, the editors are in my uh, correct, where we, what we correct. So the first one, it doesn't have a name. This, this is a quite a famous error though. We call it an accidental devotion. <laughs> 
Um, if you are puzzled by this or you worry about it, Ben Yagoda in the New York Times had a fantastic rundown of this error in an article called The Most Comma Mistakes. Um, so you know how you can dunk something into a sentence between a pair of commas? You know how you can sort of go, yeah. So here I've got a sentence, people who like donuts are great. And now I can go, ooh, do you see the difference? <laughs> people who like donuts, by the way, are great. So that, as it's cordoning off between parenthetical commas, does have a big effect for readers. The way we, as readers, process a pair of commas like that is we understand that material to be a by the way kind of extra information. Um, and prob the problem with it is sometimes writers will demote vital information down into that comma pair, into the bracketed commas. Happy birthday to the amazing who bought the characters. Where'd he go? He's gone to what we call the sunken place. It's not okay to have parenthetical commas there. Um, so do that zero read. What, you, what editors do is they'll just read a sentence and mentally delete anything that's presented between commas. And then you can see, oh, whoops. Can you see how stuff's missing? You say, oh, what's missing? And then pull it back out. This can make people feel very uncomfortable because they're very used to seeing commas around names. Putting commas around names about 50% of the time produces this error. And it's a big deal. It's not wrong to put commas around names if the names are parenthetical, <laughs> like literally additional information. So here we have joined food intolerant and are intolerably smug foodie co-host as they take a sassy swipe. Do you see how it's okay to put Kate McLennan between commas? But it's not okay to put Kate McCartney between commas. Yeah. See how this is fine? Our restaurant critic delivers her verdict. Just do that read, read without the parenthetical and you'll know what's okay. All right? Good. I'm deprogramming you. If you're someone that puts commas around every name, names don't need commas. <laughs> they don't need commas. They can have commas if they're parenthetical, okay? Names don't need commas. Okay, good. Bad joins. The girl next to me is pretty. I collect her hair. <laughs> Here we have you now know. You can look at that and go, that's two complete thoughts. Each one of them has a subject-verb pair. And so we say each of these is a clause, right? And, it's, and these are what we call independent clauses. They could stand on their own as a sentence if they wanted to. So you think of independent clauses as having quite a lot of physical weight. You're not allowed to join them with commas. I want you to think of if something's an independent clause, it weighs a lot. And commas aren't strong enough to rivet them together. This feels arbitrary, but it, from, for readers it's really important. Like we have to process as readers a lot of things that commas do. A lot of things. And everything that commas do is setting aside things that don't weigh much in sentences. If you try to use commas as a big clause gluer, it messes us up. We read it like a Trump tweet. Like, see you in court, the security of our nation is at stake. Like it sort of produces that, what we call a run-on sentence. So, comma splice, can't do it. Oh, here we go. Would you use a semicolon for that? Yes. Or, yeah. You're all over it. So, let's, there are five official solutions for the splice. So here we go. The first solution is what we, you're going to need strong glue or a division. So one of these is strong glue. What are these? They're called the coordinating conjunctions. And these are easy to remember. Fanboys. For and nor but or yet so. Fanboys. Good. So think of them as strong glue. And actually you can team a comma, the joining comma with them if you want to. 
So that's not wrong. Um, what's another way? We could make one half of the sentence way less. Do you see how I've made it so it doesn't stand on its own now? Now it can hang off a comma. Okay. Semicolon. One of its primary roles is as a clause joiner. Just think a strong rivet. Now, I want to make it clear that I'm now aware that Netflix is not free. I thought it was free for a long time. It turns out my boyfriend was just paying for it. <laughs> anyway, I just, so I know that. Um, uh, anyway, another, a solution is that you can, some cases you can use a colon. Those cases are, now, you're allowed to have a colon and I want you to banish from your mind dot point list. I'm not talking about dot point list now. I'm talking about sentences. You're allowed to have a colon in a sentence if you pass two tests. First, what comes before the colon must be a complete, a thing that functions as an independent clause. Okay, what comes, the second thing is, after you say the independent clause, you have to be able to hear a voice in your head that can either go, what? Or the voice can go, namely, in my head, it's my friend Sarah. So let's listen for Sarah. Like I could go, I've got a great idea. See how that passes the first test? And then I listen for Sarah. And she goes, what? <laughs> and I go, great, colon. Let's go out to karaoke. Or I could go, Scrooge McDuck has three nephews. And then listen for Sarah. And then she goes, namely. I go, yeah, colon. Let's do one that doesn't work. I fell down the stairs. See how she doesn't say anything though? No colon. So what or namely will work. Or full stop new sentence. Some of you will be familiar with a dash here and that's an emergent use for the dash. I'm seeing the dash doing a lot of that. So check your style guide on whether a dash can do that. Okay, broken lists. Most lists are broken. When editors get to a list, they stop and they ask two questions. First of all, what is the root of this list? So what's the thing that's connecting forward to each list item? Yeah, I like. So that's the first step. Then you make a connect. So go, I like coffee, I like burgers, I like ice cream, I like pies, I like chocolate, I like sometimes I eat lollies. Uh-oh. <laughs> broken list. And it's not obvious unless you do that. So then you're like, all right, lollies. That connects to I like. Or this has different dreams for itself. It wants to move out into its own apartment. You can let it do that, but it ha you have to bring your end. The list needs an end, right? So there's the root. Okay, sorry, there's the root. Now, what did they do? Spend time pinging, spend time spending, spend time lounging, spend time they don't finish their home. Damn it. <laughs> spend time avoiding. Or let it move out. There you go. Here's our premier, Daniel Andrews, with a broken list. Now, you're going to do... The first step, right, so mentally delete that parenthetical between the dashes and then just read the sentence. Cancelling the planning approval now is unprecedented. Oh, we've got a list. Okay, so we stop. What's the root? Cancelling the planning approval now is. Okay, let's test it. Is unprecedented, is unwarranted, is creates a wave of... Uh-oh. <laughs> this is an interesting one because it's what we call a compound predicate. So it's a subject connecting through to two verbs. Um, it's hard to solve because you're, you're reluctant to put a comma, but I, I would do is unprecedented and unwarranted and creates a, yeah. All right, let's do, do you see there's the root? And the only reason I say it is because when a reader gets to that broken bit of a list, they might not notice it, but in their subconscious, their brain sort of goes, Dzz! it's a bit of a brain fart moment, yeah. Like it last danglers. This is, so this is, this is, yeah, this is awful for readers and it's pretty funny too. Has anyone um, come across a dangling modifier before? No? <laughs> sounds gross. I know, it sounds really gross and it is. Right, so, you know, we start, a, we will often start a sentence with 
what we call it, what we'd call a modifying phrase. So I'll give you an example. Freezing their butts off, comma, everyone sat in M Pavilion or two. <laughs> or, you know, or built like a brick house. My brother is great at rugby. You know how you start with that modifying phrase? So when you start a sentence with a modifying phrase behind a comma, what follows that modifier will be modified by it. Right? So here we have now a powerful lobbyist. His phone was <laughs> so for a said they think, oh. And here we have a phone who is a powerful lobbyist. That's what this sentence means. Um, it doesn't matter what you feel. Okay, so this comes from the New York Times uh, quiz. Copy edit this. And I, I, you can, I'll send you the links to all of those if you sign up. Um, Philip, the setter of the quiz, says, Penny, you are right. It is wrong. It is a dangling modifier. Okay, so the way you can avoid dangling is as soon as you're aware you're starting a sentence with a modifying phrase, like this one, just for the ball, little voice in your head, who was, what was, better be the thing that was not dangling. Reading the news, who was, what was, I, stinking to high heaven, who was, what was, the blue cheese in my bag. None of these are dangling. <laughs> Let's go to some danglers though. Here's Frankie magazine, beautifully photographed and presented, who was, what was, you'll. And it's really tempting to do it, and this is everywhere, right? Um, because, because you... You feel that you're saving words by not putting the doer in. Um, the way to fix it, though, is always you have to add more words. So we'd have to go beautifully photographed and presented. Who was, was? This book will introduce you to the... I'm getting a lot of frowns here. All right. Having shot to fame for its crystal clear waters and white sand, who was, what was? Furious residence. <laughs> I'm about to show you a very rare, rarely seen in the world, a reverse dangler that my friend Michael put on Facebook. I recently found this old painting after being locked away in storage for years. <laughs> it's like, geez, Michael, I haven't seen you in a while. <gasps> Gee, okay, I'm glad you got out. <laughs> Can you see how that's a coffee machine that does exams? This is horrific, genuinely. <laughs> Here we go, more public transport cuts. Train doesn't even have wheels. This is a very cute one, actually. <laughs> um, um, over the road today, we're selling a, a, a um, modifier error poster at the art book fair, and it's called The Bird Looked Enormous. Friends that aren't coming to your house because you cooked them last time. <laughs> anyway, in conclusion, that's your big four. So well done, everyone. You've survived a morning of grammar. Give yourselves a round of applause. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.